0: Robinson Crusoe, Part 13. This recording copyright Candlelight Stories, Inc., available at candlelightstories.com. Narrated by Alessandro Chima. A Candlelight Stories Audio Production. The life and strange, surprising adventures of Robinson Crusoe, of York. Mariner, by Daniel Defoe. I reposed that night in the boat, and in the morning resolved to harbor what I had gotten in my new cave, not to carry it home to my castle. After refreshing myself, I got all my cargo on shore, and began to examine it. The cask of liquor I found to be a kind of rum, but not such as we had at the Brazils, and, in a word, not at all good. But when I came to open the chests, I found several things I wanted, for example, I found in one a fine case of bottles of an extraordinary kind, and filled with cordial waters, fine and very good. The bottles held about three pints each and were tipped with silver. I found two pots of very good succades, or sweetmeats, so fastened on top that the salt water had not hurt them, and two more of the same which the water had spoiled. I found some very good shirts, which were very welcome to me, and about a dozen and a half of white linen handkerchiefs and colored neckcloths, the former were also very welcome being exceedingly refreshing to wipe my face on in a hot dry day besides this when i came to the till in the chest i found there three great bags of pieces of eight which held about eleven hundred pieces in all and in one of them wrapped up in a paper six doubloons of gold and some small bars of gold i suppose they might all weigh near a pound the other chest i found had some clothes in it but of little value but by the circumstances it must have belonged to the gunner's mate though there was no powder in it but about two pounds of glazed powder in three small flasks kept i suppose for charging their fowling pieces on occasion Upon the whole, I got very little by this voyage that was of much use to me, for, as to the money, I had no manner of occasion for it. It was to me as the dirt under my feet, and I would have given it all for three or four pair of English shoes and stockings, which were things I greatly wanted, for I had not had a pair on my feet for many years. I had indeed gotten two pair of shoes now, which I took off the feet of the two men whom I found drowned in the wreck, and I found two pair more in one of the chests, which were very welcome to me, but they were not like our English shoes, either for ease or service, being rather what we call pumps than shoes. I found in this seaman's chest about fifty pieces of eight in royals, but no gold. I suppose this belonged to a poorer man than the other, which seemed to belong to some officer. Having now brought all my things on shore, and secured them, I went back to my boat, and rowed, or paddled her along the shore, to her old harbor, where I laid her up, and made the best of my way to my old habitation, where I found everything safe and quiet. So I began to repose myself, live after my old fashion, and take care of my family affairs. And for a while I lived easy enough, only that I was more vigilant than I used to be, looked out oftener, and did not go abroad so much. And if any time I did stir with any freedom, It was always to the east part of the island, where I was pretty well satisfied the savages never came, and where I could go without so many precautions, and such a load of arms and ammunition as I always carried with me, if I went the other way. One night in the rainy season, in March, the four-and-twentieth year of my first setting foot in this land of solitariness, I had the following dream, namely, that as I was going out in the morning, as usual from my castle, I saw upon the shore two canoes and eleven savages coming to land, and that they brought with them another savage, whom they were going to kill in order to eat him, when on a sudden the savage that they were going to kill made his escape and ran for his life, and then I thought in my sleep that he came running into my little grove before my fortification to hide himself, and that I, seeing him, and not perceiving that the others sought him that way, showed myself to him, and encouraged him, that he kneeled down to me, seeming to pray to me to assist him, upon which I showed him my ladder, made him go up and carried him into my cave, and he became my servant, and that, as soon as I had got this man, I said to myself, "'Now I may venture to the mainland, for this fellow will serve me as a pilot.' and tell me what to do, and whither to go for provisions, and whither not to go for fear of being devoured, what places to venture into, and what to escape. I awoke with this thought, and was under such inexpressible impressions of joy at the prospect of my escape in my dream, that the disappointment I felt upon coming to myself and finding it was no more than a dream was really extravagant the other way, and threw me into a very great dejection of spirits. Upon this, however, I made this conclusion, that my only way to go about an attempt for an escape was to try to get a savage in my possession and, if possible, it should be one of their prisoners whom they had condemned to be eaten and should bring hither to kill. With these resolutions in my thoughts I set myself upon the scout as often as possible, and indeed so often, till I was heartily tired of it, I was not at first more careful to shun the sight of these savages and avoid being seen by them than I was now eager to be upon them. Besides, I fancied myself able to manage one, nay, two or three savages, if I had them so as to make them entirely slaves to me, to do what I should direct them, and to prevent their being able at any time to do me any hurt. It was a great while that I pleased myself with this affair, but nothing still presented. All my fancies and schemes came to nothing, for no savages came near me for a great while. About a year and a half after I had entertained these notions, and by long musing had, as it were, resolved to put them into execution, I was surprised one morning, early, with seeing no less than five canoes all on shore together on my side of the island, and the people who belonged to them all landed. The number of them broke all my measures, for seeing so many— and knowing that they always came four or sometimes more in a boat i could not tell what to think of it or how to take my measures to attack twenty or thirty men single-handed so i lay still in my castle perplexed and discomforted however i put myself into all the same postures for an attack that i had formerly provided and was just ready for action if anything had presented having waited a good while listening to hear if they made any noise at length being very impatient I set my guns at the foot of my ladder, and clambered up to the top of the hill by my two stages as usual, standing so, however, that my head did not appear above the hill, so that they could not perceive me by any means. I here observed, by the help of my perspective glass, that they were no less than thirty in number, and they had a fire kindled, and that they had meat dressed, how they cooked it that I knew not, or what it was, but they were all dancing, in I know not how many barbarous gestures and figures round the fire. While I was thus looking on them, I perceived by my perspective glass two miserable wretches, dragged from the boats where, it seems, they were laid by and were now brought out for the slaughter. I perceived one of them immediately fall, being knocked down, I suppose, with a club or wooden sword, for that was their way, and two or three others were at work, cutting him open for their cookery while the other victim was left standing by himself till they should be ready for him. In that very moment, the poor wretch, seeing himself a little at liberty, Nature inspired him with hopes of life, and he started away from them and ran with incredible swiftness along the sands directly towards me, I mean towards that part of the coast where my habitation was. I was dreadfully frightened, that I must acknowledge, when I perceived him to run my way, and especially when, as I thought, I saw him pursued by the whole body, and I expected that part of my dream was coming to pass, and that he would take shelter in my grove. But I could not depend, by any means, upon my dream for the rest of it, namely, that the savages would not pursue him thither and find him there. However, I kept my station, and my spirits began to recover when I found that there were not above three men that followed him, and still more was I encouraged when I found that he outstripped them exceedingly in running, and gained ground of them, so that if he could but hold out for half an hour, I saw he would fairly get away from them all. There was between them and my castle the creek, which I mentioned often at the first part of my story, when I landed my cargoes out of the ship. And this I knew he must necessarily swim over, or the poor wretch would be taken there. But when the savage, who was escaping, came thither, he made nothing of it, though the tide was then up, but plunging in he swam through it in about thirty strokes or thereabouts, landed, and ran on with exceeding strength and swiftness. When the three pursuers came to the creek, I found that two of them could swim, but the third could not, and that he, standing on the other side, looked at the others, but went no farther, and soon after went softly back again, which, as it happened, was very well for him. I observed that the two who swam were yet twice as long swimming over the creek as the fellow was that fled from them. It came now very warmly upon my thoughts, and indeed irresistibly, that now was my time to get me a servant, and perhaps a companion, or assistant and that I was called plainly by providence to save this poor creature's life. I immediately got down the ladders, fetched my two guns, for they were both at the foot of the ladders, and getting up again with the same haste to the top of the hill, I crossed towards the sea, and, having a very short cut and all downhill, clapped myself in the way between the pursuers and the pursued, hallowing aloud to him that fled, who, looking back, was at first as much frightened at me as at them but I beckoned with my hand to him to come back, and in the meantime I slowly advanced towards the two that followed. Then, rushing at once upon the foremost, I knocked him down with the stock of my piece. I was loath to fire because I would not have the rest to hear, though at that distance it would not have been easily heard, and being out of sight of the smoke, too, they would not have known what to make of it. Having knocked this fellow down, the other who followed him stopped, as if he had been frightened, and I advanced a pace towards him, But as I came nearer, I perceived presently he had a bow and arrow, and was fitting it to shoot at me. So I was then necessitated to shoot at him first, which I did, and killed him at the first shot. The poor savage who fled but had stopped, though he saw both his enemies fallen and killed, as he thought, yet was so frightened with the noise and fire of my piece that he stood stock still, and neither came forward nor went backward, though he seemed rather inclined to fly still, than to come on i hallowed again to him and made signs to him to come forward which he easily understood and came a little way then stopped again and then a little farther and stopped again and then he stood trembling as if he had been taken prisoner and had just been to be killed as his two enemies were I beckoned to him again to come to me, and gave him all the signs of encouragement that I could think of, and he came nearer and nearer, kneeling down every ten or twelve steps in token of acknowledgment for saving his life. I smiled at him, and looked pleasantly, and beckoned to him to come still nearer. At length he came close to me, and then he kneeled down again, kissed the ground, and taking my foot, set it upon his head. This, it seems, was in token of swearing to be my slave forever. I took him up, and made much of him, and encouraged him all I could. But I perceived the savage whom I knocked down was not killed, but stunned with the blow, and began to come to himself. So I pointed to him, showing him the savage, that he was not dead. Upon this he spoke some words to me and though I could not understand them, yet I thought they were pleasant to hear, for they were the first sound of a man's voice that I had heard, my own accepted, for above five and twenty years. But there was no time for such reflections now. The savage who was knocked down recovered himself so far as to sit upon the ground, and I perceived that my savage began to be afraid, but when I saw that, I presented my other piece at the man, as if I would shoot him. Upon this my savage, for so I call him now, made a motion to me to lend him my sword, which hung naked in a belt by my side, so I did. He no sooner had it than he ran to his enemy, and at one blow cut off his head so cleverly no executioner in Germany could have done it sooner or better, which I thought very strange for one who, I had reason to believe, never saw a sword in his life before, except their own wooden swords. However, it seems, as I learned afterwards— they make their wooden swords so sharp so heavy and the wood is so hard that they will cut off heads and arms with them and at one blow too when he had done this he came laughing to me in sign of triumph and brought me the sword again and laid it down with the head of the savage he had killed just before me he was astonished how i had killed the other indians so far off And going to him, he stood like one amazed, looking at him, turning him, first on one side, then on the other, looking at the wound the bullet had made, which was in the breast, where it had made a hole, and no great quantity of blood had flowed, but he had bled inwardly, for he was quite dead. Then he took up his bows and arrows and came back, and I beckoned for us to go away, making signs that more might come after them. Upon this he signed to me that he should bury them with sand, that they might not be seen by the rest if they followed. So I made signs for him to do so. He fell to work, and had them both buried in the sand in about a quarter of an hour. I then called him away, and took him not to my castle, but my cave on the farther part of the island. So I did not let my dream come to pass in that respect, namely, that he came into my grove for shelter. Here I gave him bread and a bunch of raisins to eat and a draught of water, which he was in great distress for, by his running, and having refreshed him, I made signs for him to go to sleep, pointing to a place where I had laid a great parcel of rice straw and a blanket upon it, which I used to sleep upon myself sometimes, so the poor creature lay down and went to sleep. He was a comely handsome fellow, perfectly well made, tall and well shaped, and as I reckon about twenty-six years of age. He had a very good countenance, not a fierce and surly aspect, but seemed to have something very manly in his face, and yet he had all the sweetness and softness of a European in his countenance too, especially when he smiled. His hair was long and black, not curled like wool, his forehead very high and large, and a great vivacity and sparkling sharpness in his eyes. The color of his skin was not quite black, but very tawny, and yet not of an ugly yellow, nauseous tawny as the Brazilians and Virginians and other natives of America are, but of a bright kind of dun-olive color that had in it something very agreeable, though not very easy to describe. His face was round and plump, his nose small, not flat like the negroes, a very good mouth, thin lips, and his teeth fine, well set, and white as ivory. After he had slumbered about half an hour, he waked and came out of the cave to me, for I had been milking the goats in the enclosure just by. When he espied me, he came running and laid himself on the ground again, with all possible signs of an humble, thankful disposition, making many antic gestures to show it. At last he lays his head flat upon the ground, close to my foot, and sets my other foot upon his head as he had done before, and after this made all the signs to me of subjection, servitude, and submission imaginable, to let me know how much he would serve me as long as he lived. I understood him in many things, and let him know I was well pleased with him. In a little time I began to speak to him and teach him to speak to me, and first made him know his name should be friday which was the day i saved his life i likewise taught him to say master and then let him to know that was to be my name i also taught him to say yes and no and to know the meaning of them I gave him some milk in an earthen pot and some bread, and let him see me drink some before him and sop my bread in it, which he quickly imitated, and made signs that it was very good for him. I kept there with him all that night, but as soon as it was day, I took him away with me. As we went by the place where he had buried the two men, he pointed exactly to the spot and showed me the marks he had made to find them again, making signs to me that we should dig them up and eat them. At this I appeared very angry, expressed my abhorrence of it, made as if I would vomit at the thoughts of it, and beckoned with my hand to him to come away, which he immediately did with great submission. I then led him to the top of the hill to see if his enemies were gone, and pulling out my glass I looked, and saw plainly the place where they had been, but no appearance of them or their canoes, so they were quite gone. I then took my man Friday with me, giving him the sword in his hand, with the bow and arrows at his back, which I found he could use very dexterously, making him carry one gun for me, and I two for myself, and away we marched to the place where these creatures had been. When I came there, my very blood ran chill in my veins, and my heart sank within me at the horror of the spectacle. Indeed, it was a dreadful sight. The place was covered with human bones. The ground dyed with the blood, great pieces of flesh left here and there, half-eaten, mangled and scorched, and in short all the tokens of the triumphant feast they had been making there after a victory over their enemies. I saw three skulls, five hands, and the bones of three or four legs and feet and abundance of other parts of the bodies, and Friday, by his signs, made me understand that they brought over four prisoners to feast upon, that three of them were eaten and that he, pointing to himself, was the fourth, that there had been a great battle between them and their next king, whose subjects, it seems, he had been one of, and that they had taken a great number of prisoners, all of which were carried to several places by those that had taken them in the fight in order to feast upon them, as was done here by these wretches. I caused Friday to gather all the bones and flesh that remained, and lay them together in a heap, and burn them into ashes. I found that he had still a hankering stomach after the flesh, and was still a cannibal in his nature. But I displayed such abhorrence at the very thoughts of it, that he durst not discover it, for I let him know that I would kill him if he offered it. When we had done this, we came back to our castle, where I gave Friday, first of all, a pair of linen drawers, which I had out of the poor gunner's chest I found in the wreck, and which, with a little alteration, fitted him very well. Then I made him a jerkin of goatskin as well as I was able, and I gave him a cap, which I had made of a hare's skin, and thus he was dressed for the present tolerably well, and mighty well was he pleased to see himself almost as well clothed as his master. He went awkwardly in these things at first, wearing the drawers was very awkward to him, and the sleeves of the jerkin galled his shoulders and the inside of his arms, but he soon got used to them. The next day, after I came home to my hut with him, I began to consider where I should lodge him, and so I made a little tent for him in the vacant place between the two fortifications, in the inside of the last and in the outside of the first. And as there was an entrance there into my cave, I made a formal framed door case and a door to it of boards, and set it up in the passage, a little within the entrance, and causing the door to open in the inside, I barred it up in the night taking in my ladders, too, so that Friday could no way come at me in the inside of my innermost wall, without making so much noise in getting over that it must needs awaken me. For my first wall had now a complete roof over it of long poles, covering all my tent, and leaning up to the side of the hill which was again laid across with small sticks instead of lathes, and then thatched over a great thickness with the rice straw, which was strong like reeds, and that the hole or place which was left to go in or out by the ladder I had placed a kind of a trap-door which, if it had been attempted on the outside, would not have opened at all, but would have fallen down and made a great noise, I took care to take all the weapons into my side every night. But I needed none of these precautions, for never was a more faithful, loving, sincere servant than Friday was to me. "'without passions, sullenness, or designs. "'His very affections were tied to me, "'like those of a child to its father, "'and, I dare say, he would have sacrificed his life "'for the saving of my own upon any occasion whatever. "'I was greatly delighted with him, "'and made it my business to teach him everything "'that was proper and useful, "'and especially to make him speak "'and understand me when I spoke, "'and he was a very apt scholar.' and he was so merry, so diligent, and so pleased, when he could understand me, or make me understand him, that it was very pleasant for me to talk to him, and now my life began to be very easy and happy. After I had been two or three days returned to my castle, I thought that in order to bring Friday off from his horrid way of feeding, and from the relish of a cannibal's stomach, I ought to let him taste other flesh. So I took him out with me one morning to the woods, and saw a she-goat lying down in the shade, and two young kids close by her. I catched hold of Friday. Hold, said I. Stand still. And made signs to him not to stir. Immediately I presented my piece, shot and killed one of the kids. The poor creature who had, at a distance indeed, seen me kill the savage, his enemy, but did not know nor could imagine how it was done, was sensibly surprised, trembled and shook, and looked so amazed that I thought he would have sunk down. He did not see the kid I had shot at, nor perceived I had killed it, but ripped up his waistcoat to feel, if he was not wounded, and, as I found, thought I was resolved to kill him. For he came and kneeled down to me, and embracing my knees, said a great many things I did not understand, but I could see that his meaning was to pray to me, not to kill him. A Candlelight Stories Audio Production